Hey everybody, welcome to Sudbury Stories. Sudbury's full of amazing individuals that are doing incredible things and making this city a better place. It's my goal to get the word out about the good news stories local to Sudbury and highlight those individuals like Mike here that are making an impact and making Sudbury a better place. Correct response. What is my hometown, Sudbury, Ontario? Today we have Mike with us. He's the Director of Applied Research at Cambrian College in Sudbury, Ontario, where he oversees the blending of R&D projects between industry, funders, and faculty, student researchers at Cambrian. And he's been able to blend his passions in research and history with his love for sports, and has carved out a niche as a team historian with the Sudbury Wolves and a writer for the LA Kings. He's also had his writing featured in Sportsnet, Vice Sports, The Athletic, The Hockey News, Sports Illustrated, and he's published author with his first book, titled Hockey 365, and in those watching on camera, we've got the book here on the table with us today, uh, Daily Stories from the Ice, a collection of short stories of Canada's favorite pastime. So welcome to the podcast, Thanks Mike. for having me. Yeah, Good well, to be this, here. Is, this is pretty fantastic. It's, uh, I, I just want to start on the whole basis of, it, I feel like the, in, the, in the 2010s, in this, this, when we kind of look back at this generation, it's going to be the generation where like, the younger, our age people are growing up and we're, we're not really saying we want to have a traditional job. We want yeah. to go in and kind of, you know, we, we want to do something we're passionate about. And I can't think of another person that's done a job that they're passionate about more than, you know, writing about hockey, especially hockey history. Yeah. No, and I, I wouldn't have thought that I'd even be doing this right now, to be honest. You would have asked me like five, ten years ago, let's say, would you be a, like, have a hockey book, write for the LA Kings, do all these sorts of things? Like, I always loved hockey, but never really thought that I could take, like, my skill set as a historian and my passion for history and kind of blend the two together. So, I mean, it's just been kind of fun to explore and see where it goes. I mean, I started off blogging and then ended up getting these other opportunities, so it's kind of cool to see it evolve, and I don't know where it's going to go, but it's definitely, uh, love doing it, uh, in addition to everything else I'm doing. It's been an interesting ride so far, I guess. So let, let's kind of rewind that and, and kind of unpack that a little bit. So it started out blogging. So yeah. what year did you start your blog? Like how did that how Yeah. Did that so I was, uh, I was doing my PhD at McMaster. I was like, um, and I was, my, my dissertation was about environmental history. I was studying the history of black bear management in Ontario. So like very niche, very ultra specific topic. Nothing to do with hockey. Nothing to do with <laughs> hockey. And as I was doing it, I was like watching a lot of hockey. Um, you know, the Maple Leafs were struggling at the time but we'll, we won't get into that and I realized that like I did a lot of writing and research and so I could take what I was doing for my uh, academic work and maybe apply that to history to tell more like accessible fun engaging stories and so I just started doing this like little Frankenstein blog on on my website where I would mix up Canadian history moments and like do NHL previews and so like it was a weird mashup where we'd say like on this day the Statute of Westminster was signed. It was a really big moment in the history of diplomacy for Canada. And here's who all the NHL teams are playing tonight. And here's why you should watch those games. And it was like a weird little thing where like, I'm sure only my mom was the one that read them. But I did it for a year just on my own. And then that led to some opportunities locally here with Subway.com. They picked up the column and I started doing it for them. And so it became this thing where we would mash up Canadian history and hockey. And then I started to take that and I did it for an LA Kings blog, uh, The Royal Half, where we were doing California moments in hockey, or California moments in uh, history with uh, Pacific Division team previews. But like how, so they, they were just, they, they found it on Sudbury.com or they found it on your website? Like how did they first to get Yeah, so that, they did a competition. So they had this thing called Royal Half Next Top Blogger, right? Kind of like a play on uh, the Tyra Banks Next Top Blogger yeah, thing, right? Yeah. So like I put in an application, like told them what I did before, what I like to do in, with the previews that I was doing. They picked me as one of the bloggers for that year. So for that year, I wrote uh, for the Royal Half and did and did that blog, right? So again, another Frankenstein thing where it was like, you kind of had this weird mix of like people who wanted California history and people who wanted LA Kings uh, analysis, right? So like it was kind of this weird thing where 
it was kind of trying to cater to two audiences that probably didn't see that crossover. So eventually after doing that for survey.com and the Royal half, it just kind of made sense for me to focus strictly on hockey history, right? And that's kind of what I went into is no more of the the blending of Canadian history and, and hockey or California history and hockey just became, let's just tell cool hockey history stories. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Which is so awesome, man. Like, I, again, if, if you think about, we're, we do what, we, we have to work a job for the rest of our lives. Yeah. So why not do something that we're going to love? And you clearly have found a perfect way to blend your passion with hockey and yeah. history and, and, you know, with what, it's not your full-time career now, we've got the Cambrian College, but it's it's a side gig and who knows in the future it might even be a, a permanent gig and we'll get into some of the, the interesting people you've interviewed and, and yeah. that kind of thing. But, uh, but yeah, just, just uh, like absolutely fantastic that you've been able to do that. Um, was there, uh, did you actually finish the, the, uh, the your PhD in the, the, the Blackie Bear? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I finished my, uh, finished my PhD at McMaster in 2015. Uh, by that point we'd already moved back to Sudbury. So I was like living in Sudbury again. We moved down to Mac for a year. Um, when I finished my PhD, I remember I, I got a gig at uh, Northern Policy Institute. And so like the, the hockey history stuff was just kind of like on the side there. I wasn't really doing it in quite the, like the frequency that I'm doing it now, but it was always there and just kind of trying to find different opportunities, blogging for different websites, just doing my own stuff. Got into Twitter, started using uh, social media to kind of promote my hockey history brand, so to speak. But all the while I was still kind of focusing on maybe I'm going to go into, you know, maybe the work that I was doing on, on Black Bear, the history of Black Bear hunting and management, maybe there's something in there, right? So I was doing all sorts of crazy stuff where I have this this bear jacket and I would go to schools in Sudbury and I would do bear uh, safety tips for, for students, right? And I would wear the bear coat and it tied into my research kind of because obviously a part of the history of bear hunting in Ontario was the fact that we need to be more bear aware, right? To have the educational piece. And so, yeah, it was just kind of like, it's a really weird mix of like, I was had my job at the Policy Institute's was doing uh, like bear safety on the side with his bear coats <laughs> and then doing the blog. Yeah, yeah. I've always I've always had a side hustle, whether it's yeah, like bear coats or or blogging. Well, so that's just absolutely fantastic, yeah. but and yeah, like I again I think it's just it, it's so incredible that you've been able to just figure out and create uh like don't don't just accept what jobs are out there, but go create a job that you want to kind of you know pursue and, and your passion. Mm-hmm. But let's kind of rewind it a little bit and, and kind of uh, f- focus on what you're doing now at Cambridge too. And like basically, you're putting uh, research your research projects and your students that are doing the research project with industry partners, right? Yeah. That's and like I've read a, like a little bit. You guys just got an, an award last week. I think it was like the fiftieth in Canada. Yeah. In so um, yeah. So I guess before we get to the fiftieth in Canada, so like the way that uh, colleges do research, right? Which is something that I you know was not that aware of. When I was in university, I always just thought university happened at, at the research level, right? So what colleges do across Canada, and Cambridge is, I think, a pretty great example of this, is they take the latest knowledge and technology that is being developed at universities and they apply it to solve a real-world challenge. And that's why we call it applied research. So industry partners or companies in town will come to Cambrian. They want to access our students, our faculty, our specialized equipment that we have across all 80-plus programs to do a project. So we're doing all sorts of cool things like a prototype development. So companies will come to us with an idea on the back of a napkin and say, hey, I've got this really good idea that I think will help solve this problem, but I don't have the capacity to do it and I don't have the funding to do it, right? And they'll come to Cambrian, they'll work with our people, and they'll take that idea and make it a reality and deliver a prototype that they can then either you know, commercialize themselves and bring to market or get ready for the next iteration of that and develop it further. Which is so fantastic because it's basically, it's, it's the companies or these, these, these people out there that don't have the resources and yet the mm-hmm. students have the resources and they get the real life knowledge, right? Yeah. And I mean, that's the big thing. That's why the colleges do it is obviously it helps the industry partners for sure, which is I think a big part of the partnership development with the college. I mean, we want to be able to make sure that we're graduating students that industry wants and needs, but for us, the students on the project, it really gives them a chance to take the skills 
They're developing the classroom and apply them to a real world challenge. And then ultimately when they graduate, they can kind of point back to these projects and say, I have real industry experience. It may be short term projects, but it, this wasn't a lab simulation or, or something from the textbook, right? This was a real company that had a real problem to solve. And I was one of the students that did it and helped them innovate. And I think that's like, that's the big, uh, the big X factor. And, and again, I'm a lot of people, younger people will come and ask me for advice and I'm in no position to give advice. I just, <laughs> I'm kind of, you know, stumbling upon life as in figuring it out as I go a lot of the time. But if I, if I give back to somebody and give give some education to somebody that's younger and asking me questions, I'm like, just get real life experience doing things because someday when, when I'm in an interview with somebody and I'm asking them questions, I want to see that they've proven themselves mm-hmm. and not just in a textbook, but in real life. And you can give that opportunity to students. Yeah. Is it most like, I, I don't picture you showing up for your first day of school and doing uh, like applied research in year one, but is it upper years? Is it like, like how is it, what kind of students are, are, are you guys working with typically? Yeah, no, it really depends on what, who the industry partner is and what kind of uh, programming they need. Right. So typically it's not the first year students that are just coming in right out of the gate. Uh, but that being said, it, it couldn't include first year students, but typically we kind of, it's more of the second or third year students who have had some experience in the program. Uh, but like I said, our, pro- our projects are usually multidisciplinary, so there's multiple programs involved. Uh, so it could be anything, welding and fabrication, electrical, uh, data analytics is a cool one. We do a lot of work in that as well. Graphic design is a big program for us as well to get that marketing spin as w- on, on the project as well. Uh, so it really kind of varies and it just kind of depends on what the industry partner wants. We try to make kind of choose your own adventure, come to Cambrian, tell us what your challenge is and we'll try to figure out what pieces we can bring together to solve that problem. I, I, if I can recall too, I, ju- I did some reading, you guys were working around some breweries and, and things like that too. Like is there, what, what was the project that was going on there? Yeah, so uh, we did a, we just kind of did this uh, little environmental scan in the summertime. Our president was meeting with the president of Niagara College. Niagara College is one of the premier uh, brewing and, and teaching institutes in Canada where they do a lot of work with, uh, they have a, a brewery program that's world renowned and they have a brewery, a teaching brewery, but they also do a lot of research with companies that are distillers and brewers. And so he kind of just wanted to know what was going on in Northern Ontario, what's going on in our backyard before he obviously chatted with Niagara. And so uh, one of the one of our folks on our team, Cody Cacciotti and, and Riley Lackin, and kind of did a, uh, did a scan of what's happening in Northern Ontario. I mean, we obviously have a pretty uh, vibrant craft brewing uh, distilling industry. It's really coming along over the last yeah. like, decade, right? Yeah, I mean, awesome it's definitely see. different from when we were kids, right? And you're drinking uh, draft <laughs> balls from Northern, which was great. Uh, I wish that we had draft balls now, but anyway, that's a, that's another story. So They, they we, don't freeze in the snow banks when you're playing yes, on hockey. Yeah, no, I, yeah, that, <laughs> those were classic, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, so anyway, we took all that kind of information. We thought that this is kind of a really interesting assessment of what's going on. And thought that, you know, if we could take that and put bring them all together in kind of a form that we had a couple weeks ago, we brought Niagara College to Sudbury to talk about what they're doing and if and how uh, brewers in Northern Ontario can work with colleges to help them solve their challenges. Even though Cambrian doesn't have a specific program in brewing, we do have complementary programs like welding and fabrication, machining and electrical and you business students. Side, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's that was kind of the goal there. So, we're hoping that as a result of that summit that we had a few weeks ago, Maybe we'll get some follow-on activity where now the brewers are coming to Cambrian to say, can you help me with this? And, and, and for me, it would be great if we can do a partnership with Niagara College, who actually have the expertise in those fields, and kind of pair them with a program at Cambrian that makes sense. Yeah, it helps you get your feet off the ground and gets mm-hmm. you like, it fast-forwards though, that learning curve because you, you team up with obviously an expert in that in Absolutely. category, right? Which is just, again, an, like, an awesome thing that's going on uh, from a Cambrian College uh, perspective. I have heard a little bit of a, a, a rumbling that, you know, with the mining industry that's here, and when we think about mining, it's no longer that hitting with a pickaxe underground kind of thing. It's so much a tech 
technologically driven mining uh, um, sector now, mm-hmm. and that like the, we're we're trying to position ourselves as that Silicon Valley of the the North, basically, yeah. especially around mining technology. Like, are you guys doing anything with that right now? Or? Yeah, actually, it's uh, so we have a res- we have a specialized research hub at Cambria that's called the Center for Smart Mining, and that's designed to work with the the mining ser- the mining sector, right? So typically, we work with the small to medium uh, enterprises. Uh, but we, the idea there is to work with technology companies that are looking to develop technology that will be adopted by the end users like the, the Valleys and the Glencores of the world. And so our mandate for that research center is to give companies access to the specialized equipment that we have uh, to provide training opportunities. Again, there's a lot of reskilling and upskilling opportunities right now, especially with the move to battery electric vehicles underground, right? It's definitely not the way it was before where you're just going to have guys that are graduating as heavy-duty mechanics. You're going to have to have guys that can also service these battery electric vehicles, which are a different animal from, you know, the diesel ones we've seen in the past, right? So there's opportunities there to collaborate with the industry to help them develop these training opportunities and then also do these types of projects where we do an investigation, maybe develop a prototype or maybe we improve a process. So that, that center is very much focused on a lot of the digital trends we're seeing in mining. A lot of companies, again, mining is still a very big industry, but they're looking for finite data and how do you analyze that and what's the best way to do that and, and how do we set that all up? Um, and so that's a big part of it as well. But even environmental uh, problems that the mining industry is facing, that is all part of making companies mine more intelligently more, or more smart, right? And that's why we, we, we've turned to the Center for Smart Mining. Yeah, that's awesome. And like, like again, I think it's also the one thing you didn't comment there, but it, from what I've seen now and kind of the, the, the infancy baby steps, and we're probably beyond that now, but is, is just from a safety perspective on training operators that are underground and by, by using technology, that's the easiest place to mm-hmm. do their, their initial training, right? So yeah, that's, that, that's, that's cool from that perspective that they can, they can be like almost like our like augmented reality where they're surrounded by they feel like they're in a mindset they could be in, a, in an operating the, whatever they're the scoop of bucket or that they're training mm-hmm. on and that yet they're still like above ground maybe sitting in Cambridge College or something like yeah. that yeah so. no definitely a lot of neat opportunities there to kind of get into that that type of training and upskilling fantastic if we had to say and it, it's it's like almost picking one of your favorite kids and I know you have just one with one of the way but if you had a favorite project that you worked on in the last, last little bit what would it be um, we, yeah, so I mean, they're all great. I love all of our projects at Cambridge College, but the one that I would say that I think is really the coolest because I got to actually see it from start to finish when I first started at Cambridge and then we see the final product now, there's a, a local company in town called uh, Current Solutions Group and they make, um, they, they initially got into the market making these uh, L, uh, USB rechargeable LED vests, typically like high visibility for underground, but they also make them for if you went out running at night and you wanted to wear a vest or even for your dog, they have those things, right? So. You make, you're making these USB uh, rechargeable vests, but where are you going to charge them? And then they also realized that with more and more mining companies getting more digital and you have smartphones and tablets underground, where are you going to charge these devices, right? You can either charge them in a refuge station or you can charge them in your vehicle underground, but there's not obviously outlets along a drift, right? And so they're like, we need to come up with a multi-port charging system that will allow companies to kind of hardwire it into the electricity underground that will allow you to charge these devices at once and obviously not have them blow up or catch on fire. So they came to us with one of those ideas on the back of a napkin. They engaged with our welding and fabrication, our electrical. We don't have an electronics program, but we do have a a faculty member from that program still who has the know-how to make printed circuit boards and make sure all the components work together so they don't overheat and explode. It had to it had to meet industry standards so it could operate underground. So again, uh, had to be water resistant, dust resistant, you know, withstand the temperatures underground as well. So we put all that together with uh, with those groups, but we also brought in graphic design to give it a cool look and feel. And so they ended up giving it a product name. It's called the UXB. It's this bright yellow, high visibility, but it looks slick. Um, and then they did some marketing collateral to kind of go along with it as well. So we really took that project from this partner's idea. He knew what he wanted to do, 
but he just really kind of needed to corral the resources. So that, that one's a really cool one for me because he now has a full working prototype that he has orders in hand for. Now his, his thing is just now bringing it to market. I think it's a really cool product and really cool idea. That's fantastic. It's so cool when you can take the back of a napkin and it's an idea uh, that somebody has and then, you know, create the product and you do go through all the safety and then actually create the brain and everything. Yeah. And then what, like, like I guess best case scenario, what is he, six, 12 months, uh, two years away from marketplace or what would you No, use? I think he, he already has orders in hand right now. Um, I think it's just a matter of getting it manufactured, right? So he wow. actually has sourced some manufacturing locally. I think he has some abroad as well. So it's just really kind of putting that all together because he does have, we were, we were able to give him the working prototype and all of the marketing collateral to go with it, right? So once he's able to be in a position where he can feasibly manufacture these on a consistent basis, he kind of has everything to go with it, right? It's just a matter of, of bringing it to market, which is a, is a big undertaking, but I think uh, I think he's up for the challenge. Developing the products is the first and foremost. Yeah. Though, and clearly you guys have yeah. helped out with that. And I hope he gives you a vest in the end where you can take it for your <laughs> late night jogs or anything. Yeah, like that. yeah. Especially with our five o'clock darkness that yeah. we're getting yeah. right now, which is a little bit of a challenge. But that's that's awesome. It's, it's so cool to see what's going on in Cambrian. And then again, getting that real world, ex- real world experience, not just for like putting the partnerships together, which is a fun thing for mm-hmm. you, I guess, but also for the students where, again, these are the questions that they're going to be asked in an interview. And if you can prove that you've done it in a school atmosphere, but it's, it's real life examples, then that those people are going to be further ahead in the end, I'm sure. So fantastic. If we take it back in, and, and, um, back to the kind of the hockey, uh, the hockey mindset, because you've got two hats basically that yeah. you're wearing all the time. Uh, so team historian for the Sudbury Wolf, Sudbury Wolf, sorry. Uh, last, I guess this was 2018. You, you took on this role. Yeah. Uh, what is the team historian for the Sudbury Wolves? So the, when we initially envisioned the role, I think the idea was there is that the, the team is approaching its 50th anniversary, um, in 2022, and they're obviously pretty proud of the, her- the the history and the heritage they've had so far. The team joined the league in, in 1972, uh, but obviously Sudbury Wolves have a much longer uh, history in the community. But we kind of wanted to focus on celebrating the club's history from when it joined the Ontario Hockey Association to, to where it's going now and where, where the future is going, right? And so the idea for me behind being a team historian is to connect with the fans in a way that, you know, you want them invested in the performance on the ice, right? Obviously, it's great to go to games and watch what the team is doing, but I think there is a connection you can build with them by tapping into the past, right? You go to a Wolves game now, and you can see fans from different generations who, you know, their their grandfather or grandmother is taking them to a game, and they watched Mike Foligno and Ron Duguay play, and then their kid watched, you know, the, the, the era that came after that, the Jamie Rivers, those guys, and now you have kids that are seeing Quinton Byfield, right? So my goal is to try to bit, bridge the gap between those eras of fans and have them all invest, invested in the same product on the ice. Uh, fortunately, it's it's always great when the team is doing well. As a team historian, you can kind of, people are, are I think, are more interested in those, those historical stories because I think there's a tendency when the team is doing bad and you put out these stories that it's kind of like a take away from what's happening on the ice. But I think regardless of how the team is doing, the history is important. I think the fans here you know, like, like that history. They like hearing those stories from the past. And I, I think they like connecting with it and celebrating that past. I think it's a, it's a completely different team now that Dario's kind of taking the reins. Right. And he's, he just seems like he's, and we don't even have to get into KED uh, discussion now or anything like that, but he's taking the reins and he's brought this, the, like with the current wolves to something fun and exciting. And he's just always trying to, even if he's just there and he's his white shirt and his jeans and <laughs> high five and all the fans and that kind of thing. Right. So, yeah. so uh, you've, you've definitely seen that firsthand. And I'm, and I'm guessing this is probably something that would not have existed five or 10 years ago. And now that it, the, the wolves have taken kind of a different spin you know or your position now exists for them mm-hmm. right? so are you doing some some writing and stuff like that or like what's i know you worked on the rod shut uh, like retirement jersey like like was that a that was one of the projects you worked yeah on? so l- last year primarily my role was was developing stories right so i think i did probably anywhere between 20 to 25 stories from when i first started may of 2018 until you know the team uh ex- like up until last summer right and so i was just kind of trying to 
connect with all sorts of different players from the past, right? And I think, and I think that's one of the unique things about the OHL, especially being a team of strength for an OHL team is that these guys don't often go on to have, you know, NHL careers. They're not always, you know, the Mike Felinos or the, or the Nick Felinos of the world. Often some of these guys, they'll, they'll play a couple of years with the Wolves. They'll go on to maybe play college university hockey, and then they get a, they get a job doing something else that's just as valuable. Right. And so I think it's important to kind of highlight those stories and connect with those alumni who may not have been, a, they, they, you know, didn't stick around that long, but they made a lasting impact in the community. They were fan favorites. They played big games, but ultimately Junior hockey is one of those uh, was is one of those leagues where there's a lot of um, people are coming in and out, right? And so I think the job of the historian, as well as connecting with the fans, is is making that uh, the connection with the alumni so that they feel a part of the team's uh, history and, and and want to celebrate it as well. So a lot of stories last year. I think this year we've kind of taken a different approach. I'm trying to key into uh, uh, some specific projects. We were hoping to retire a jersey this year again. But I don't, the timing didn't work out. So next year, that'll be my big project is, is kind of helping the team figure out who we want to retire, doing some stories around that player, maybe talking to some teammates, family, kind of setting it all up for that big night. And then obviously my next project that I'm doing this year is it's, it's Quentin Byfield's draft year. Um, and so he obviously has big the year yeah. big year, right? He has the potential right now to be the highest wolf ever drafted the NHL. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of, uh, there's a lot of focus on Sudbury right now because of what he's doing on the ice. And so I think that this cool project for us to highlight is, is where is he going to go and, and what comes next for him? And like, like I, I've heard some people throw out one, I've heard some people say two or three and like wherever mm-hmm. you, like, but, but currently what's the highest position of Wolves that have been drafted? Mike Foligno was drafted uh, third overall, third overall. I think 75 by the Red Wings. So it was, it was by the Red Wings for sure. And he was definitely third. Yeah. The year is, is a little spotty. It, it might've been actually 77. Which, but anyway, which no. would be super like it, yeah. again, it's just so awesome to see, and it, it, like again, whether he turns into this big NHL success or not, like it just it's it's really cool to see an exciting young player, mm-hmm. and it was exciting to watch him last year, and especially when you know when he teamed up with the, like an amazing goaltender, and the, just the Wolves in general were just yeah. a fun team to watch. They're they're just as fun this year. How, how many goals got scored last week? Was it or on the the Saturday, was it the Saturday game? It was Sunday. Yeah. Sunday. How many goals we got? Twenty one. Twenty one goals. I was uh, I wanted to go to that game because the LA Kings have a prospect on the Bulldogs who's leading the league in scoring right now, but I had to go. Ottawa for work and so I was we were I think we were in we were tra- we were taxiing from Toronto to Ottawa in the plane and I'm looking at the score on my phone it's like it's it's 10-9 and the Wolves scored the 10th goal with like 12 seconds left in the third period like no no OHL teams have combined for double digit uh, goals each like in the inter- in the internet era at least right so like I don't know how far back you have to go to see a time when two clubs scored 10 goals let alone you know combine for 21 goals Hamilton won in overtime but still like it's that would have been a crazy game to be at I'm really you know disappointed I missed it my father-in-law was there though so I've got to if you've got somebody that was yeah. like, I was supposed to bring my kids too and it just didn't work out with their timing and stuff like that and like kids just love watching the wolf come out on the oh, yeah. <laughs> like, they would have got their money's worth on, on seen that, yeah. that train horn yeah the train horn <laughs> 10 times so yeah <laughs> where uh, where did where did the wolf start from do you, do, you, do you have the backstory on that? Or like on the, act, like yeah, on the wire? The wi- oh, yeah, yeah. So like that goes back. That's pre-OHL era. Um, I did a story on that last year. So the details are a little spotty right now. But it was actually the wolf was donated to the original wolf that they used was donated to the club by like the, the sports department from the Sudbury Star. Yeah. And I think it was just kind of like they had somebody had given it to them. Somebody had shot a wolf and got its you know, taxidermy. Yeah. So they're like, here, you can have it. And they gave it to the team. And the team had brought in a new guy at the time. And his name escapes me. And he was really focused on enhancing the, the in-game experience. He you know, brought candy into the arena, which was a big deal. He got rid of all the old coffee that apparently was like yeah. compared to swamp water. <laughs> brought in new coffee, popcorn, all these things. And one of his marketing ideas was this wolf on a wire. 
And so this was this was actually before they put it on the wire, it used to just kind of come out of this trap door. They'd kind of push it out and it would kind of just perch there, right? Yeah. And then once the team joined the OHA in 72, they put it on a pulley system. And I talked to one of the guys um, from the original uh, the original season, and they were just in the corner like with a clothesline. And they would just sit in the corner on lawn chairs. They'd get in the game for free, but they just had to sit there and kind of pulley this thing across the ice. So it's really one of those things where – it's funny going to games, like I've been to, I don't know how many games now, and you know, and you see kids at the game, and they're fixated on that wolf. No matter how many times if you've been to a game, they, they score 10 goals or 5 goals, every time that wolf comes out, it's just like the, it's like seeing it for the first time again. So it's really one of those unique things that you have to experience in person. Whenever that new arena gets built or wherever it gets built, as long as they bring that wolf, like... That's the key. That's the key, right? Because it's going to be, it will be more hilarious there, because then you'll have the state-of-the-art you know, brand new facility with this old with this mangy wolf, but you have to have it. I feel and, like the fans would riot if you didn't. Oh yeah, exactly. Like I, I lived in Belleville for a short period of time and I remember the wolf, or sorry, the, uh, the bull that has this, the smoke coming out of the nose. So mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of the arenas have this, yeah. but it was, for me, it was the first game we went to this year and it had been almost a year since I'd taken my son to a game. My son now is only five. He's about to turn six. And like, he was, he was absolutely in love with the, the wolf that came on. Not only like the wolf howler and all the, the, the entertainment that they do, but the wolf coming out. And as soon as the the wolf scored the first goal. He said, "Dad, the wolf's gonna come. The wolf's gonna go." So he remembered yeah. this. Just and he's like right there, and I'm like, "Oh my gosh! Like, how did you remember this?" But it's uh, you know, leave it up to a kid because that's one of the yeah. highlights of the game for him. But so. that's how you build the fans, right? Is they remember that and they want to go back because you know they may not want to go back because they don't know who the players are, but they want to go back because they want to see the that wolf come out, right? Yeah. So exactly, fantastic. So that's that's on the OHL level, and like again, I just I think it's one of the coolest things that you are somebody that's in Sudbury, four hours north of Toronto, you know, in this small city of 160,000 people, and yet you are working for the LA Kings right now. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about that. Like, uh, you, you told us how you first got the job, but, like, that was kind of the start from the blog and then getting kind of your your, your trial start, and mm-hmm. then they took you on full-time after that. So how often are you writing for them now? Like, what's the process like? Yeah, so I usually write for them about... It's kind of... we I'll give them some ideas of what I want to write about on a... We'll try to forecast out a few months to say, like, here's seven or eight ideas like what do you guys think about these right and they'll kind of say yeah those are great or we don't want to you know don't do those ones and we'll kind of pick a schedule there um and and so right now I've actually I've been writing quite a bit for them this season although I think part of that is because I was writing some stories in the summer and we were kind of banking that content for delivery later in the season right and so right now I'm probably writing roughly between two to three stories a month um which is which is fun because it's it's great it's more than I wrote last year uh last year I was probably it was a little lighter it was probably one or two a month and I think that was just kind of ramping up and trying to get the feel of of who my editor is and you know now I think Robin and I who's my editor at the Kings like we have a really great system going and you know she knows how I write and she knows how to get the most out of my writing and and make it better obviously Uh, so it's kind of just like if as long as the idea makes sense for the club then we kind of just run with it right so I mean I uh, I'll have two stories coming out uh, the week of I guess November the November 22nd or no, sorry, today we're, we're talking November 20th. So the week after we're talking, there'll be two stories and it's actually on Two Kings Prospects. So I always think it's hilarious that I'm in this mining town, you know, in, in Northern Ontario. I write for an, a California-based NHL team. But one of the advantages that I do have in this area is that the Wolves are an OHL team. The Kings have prospects that are on OHL clubs. So I was able to kind of snag two of those guys when they came to town last week. So I've got some stories coming out about Akil Thomas, who's a prospect, plays for the, uh, the Niagara Ice Dogs. And then uh, Arthur Kaliev, who was here last weekend as part of that 21, you know, barn burning game, uh, <laughs> talked to him as well. So that's awesome. Yeah. And I just think it's like, again, it's going all in on what your passions are and you're passionate about hockey and history and you've kind of created your own job out of that. So all the props to you on that front too. Um, and if we, 
if we circle back to kind of what you were doing with the, one of your favorite stories, and, and, and Mike, I didn't even know you were writing this piece. I read it in the, the Globe and Mail the first time. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and it's got to be like one of the craziest stories yeah. ever. So let's let's get into it. Like, so y- you have an opportunity, and or y- there could be an opportunity to interview the great one, yeah. Wayne Gretzky. Yeah. So tell us about that. Like, what, how does that all come together? Yeah, so it was... Um, we were, uh, so this is last season, we were going to do, uh, I think it was the, the 25th anniversary um, of, it was either 25th or 35th, I can't even remember, um, of him breaking Gordie Howe's all-time uh, goal scoring record. Yeah. Um, and so I, I proposed to the team, I'm like, we should probably cover this because, you know, this was, uh, it was 25, so I just remember this, just to clarify. <laughs> it's like, this is like a, this is a milestone anniversary. This is not like, you know, sometimes I'll say, look, it's the 33rd anniversary, and they're like, well, it's... You know, let's wait a couple more years when it's more of a notable milestone. So I say to the club, I'm like, we should try to interview Gretzky. And they're like, you know what? You shouldn't get your hopes up. He doesn't really do a lot of interviews anymore, which I knew because I try to get him to do some interviews for the book, other sorts of things. And, you know, he's a busy guy. You know, they can't accept every interview request he gets. And so they're like, we'll reach out to the Oilers PR, find out if he can do it, see what happens. But don't get your hopes up. You can still do the story, but you may not be able to talk to Gretzky. So the next day, uh, we get an email back from the Oilers PR. They're like... Yeah, he, he'll call you tomorrow. And I'm like, okay, this is awesome, but I also like have a full-time career. The great one's going to give yeah. you a phone call. Yeah, the great, like. one's gonna, great one's going to call me. So that day starts off, my daughter's sick, so I'm at home in the morning, and she's like throwing up and all these things. And like, he's going to call me while she's in the bathroom, and then I'm going to have to like talk to Wayne Gretzky in the bathroom while my daughter's throwing up. And like, it's like, so this is going to be a disaster. So no calls come in the morning because they didn't really give us a time. My father-in-law comes to relieve me. I go to work. But I have a work lunch meeting um, with a client that I've never met before. And so we were going through the lunch. Um, you know, I'm, I'm explaining to her. I didn't even get into the side that I write about hockey. It was, it was purely just a work <laughs> meeting. So the, we go through the lunch, no phone call yet. We're right at the end of the meeting where just before the check is arriving, we're kind of talking about next steps. And she's kind of looking at me, explaining what she wants to do next. And my phone rings. And it, I didn't have the ringer on, but... I, I had the... You knew it was coming, so you've been I knew it was coming. Day. And it doesn't say Wayne Gretzky because I don't have his number yet, but it says, you know, where he's calling from in California. And I'm like, that's Wayne that's Gretzky. It. So, like, I had this split-second decision. I'm like, I can A, you know, either, like, say I have to take this, and then my option is to, like, go to the bathroom in the Apollo, take out my recorder, talk to him from inside a stall. And then they're like, that's weird. Like, you just left for 15 minutes while we were trying to, like, wrap up lunch. Um, and so I'm like, I can't do that because they'll think that I had indigestion or something like that. And they're not going to believe me that Wayne Gretzky is calling me. Yeah. So I, I, I made the decision that I thought was best for Cameron. I declined the call and put declined, it back in my pocket. Declined the call yeah. from the great one. Screen the, screen oh. the great one's call. So she, and I've, I've seen her since and I've shared the story with her and she's like, you were like in another planet after that phone call. And now she understands why. Like I was just like, I blew it. The Kings are going to fire me. You know, I'll never get to talk to Wayne Gretzky. Like this was, this is a horrible idea. And so I get in my van after lunch, call him back. No answer. I'm like, I blew it. So then texted him. I said, really sorry. I missed your call. I think I said it was, you know, blame it on Zoe. I'm like, my daughter was sick, whatever, which at one point of the day was true, but not at the moment. So, and because he is a great one, he did call me back. So he was very gracious about the whole thing. Got to talk to my office at Cambrian. Uh, ended up writing the story, which was pretty hilarious. But it's funny because obviously I know that it's that's the, that's the balancing act between my full time career and my exactly. side hustle. And it's and, you know I tell people that came in the story because they've seen it in the Globe and Mail or I've, I've just kind of talked about it because it's a really hilarious story. Oh, yeah. They're like, you should have answered the phone. I'm like, well, okay. Now if if, the, if Wayne Gretzky or Bobby Orr calls me again at work, now you know I will pick up the phone. But at the time <laughs> it was like new clients. 
don't want to be disrespectful. Don't also want to go to the bathroom 15 minutes. Like, this is not, not a good plan. <laughs> that didn't even come to my mind about what would be going on from the, their perspective. Because I'm like, oh, of course, you're just on the phone. But, yeah, you're in the bathroom for 15 minutes. That's yeah. bad news. <laughs> yeah, I know. Because I would have had to take out the recorder. And, like, people are coming in and out. Like, yeah. toilets are flushing. Like, it just would have been a disaster. So <laughs> That's so awesome, bud. That's so awesome. And, like, again, the... It, I can't think of somebody more fit, like more famous or more respectable that you could have the opportunity to interview and like that's yeah. got to be the top, the top of the bucket list for yeah. you. Yeah, hockey highlight for sure. I mean, like Wayne Gretzky was somebody that I grew up watching, obviously, right? I mean, I was a Leafs fan growing up, but like that was the great one, right? So everyone wanted to be Gretzky, had all sorts of Gretzky stuff. So I mean, like I don't think I could ever top that. Um, you know, it'd be cool to talk to somebody like Bobby Orr, but again, that's somebody who I wouldn't have been able to watch you know, growing up. So like, I think that's like, I've re- I've reached the pinnacle in terms of like, the, it would be, I think the top would be like an in-person interview, right? Yeah. To actually talk to him in person and really kind of, you know, s- play off like the, his body language. Cause again, in f- phone interviews are, I do a lot of them obviously given where I live. Um, and so I find that on the phone, you can kind of hide behind some of your questions. I've, I've asked questions before where you just kind of cringe because the wording didn't come out the way you wanted it to. Yeah. Whereas at least, you know, in person, you got to kind of nail those questions, right? So it's a different flow for sure. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, that's just fantastic. I, and I, I didn't even think about that perspective, but I hope the LA Kings picking up some of that long distance phone bill because I'm sure most yeah. of those calls are. Well, I had to, I had to patch them in too, because he's obviously such a high profile alumnus, right? So they're like, when he calls, can you please like, con- we'll conference in Robin and they wanted to be on the other end just in case like he said something that they needed to be aware of. Obviously they're always mindful of what their alumni are up to and how they can help, you know, better support them. And so that was part of the other thing was that, uh, is when I first blew that call, I was like, well, what am I, then I have to also patch them in and be like, I'm calling from the Apollo in the bathroom. Yeah. Um, so it, it actually worked out better the way that it was because then I got another story out of it by writing that piece for the global mail about how I and, screened the great ones call. And that's probably one of the most like brought up pieces to you that, that people read. Cause again, like I, you know, I that's where I stumble upon it just in the yeah. mail, right? So <laughs> yeah, no, because it doesn't matter if you're a hockey fan or not. It's really, it's I think story. it's a funny story, yeah. right? Especially a funny work story where it all worked out in the end. It wouldn't be so funny if like I never talked to Wayne and uh, no, I'm sure that would have been. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. there would have been a lot of regret. In that yeah, case. I don't think I would have penned that story. So <laughs> so, so hockey three sixty five. You you like tell us a little bit about how this came to be. What was the mindset and and how uh, how you went about writing this book? Yeah, so I've been writing by that point that I got the idea. Like I've been writing for various like platforms online for a few years and like knew that I kind of wanted to write a book it was something that I didn't end up doing after I finished my dissertation I just wasn't really in the mindset to write a book about black bear history about <laughs> the history of black bear hunting and management. even with the bear suit <laughs> yeah even with the bear suit you know I'd been at it for five years was kind of like and I didn't really envision getting an academic job they're so rare these days that really to write an academic book is for a particular audience right I just said you know what it's never going to go away my dissertation is always going to be there I can think about it another time so I was like, maybe I want to write a hockey book. And so I kind of built up this um, this niche on Twitter where I was sharing daily moments in hockey history that seemed to be, had some you know popularity among some of the people that followed me where it's like they like getting these like little bite-sized snapshots, right? And so I thought that maybe there was a way to take some of the writing I did before, combine it with these like daily like tidbits and turn it into a book. And so... It, it honestly came about, I was on a beach in Mexico on vacation. I was reading another hockey book and I'm like, life's too short to not write a hockey book. I mean, as soon as I got home, I tried to find a, found an agent to kind of rep me on that project, put together a proposal, shopped it around, got a publisher and then went to work. It was, uh, I signed a contract in August. It had to be submitted first draft by January. So it was like a crazy wow. six month uh, turnaround six time. So I had to do the research 
Um, and the writing in six months, so a lot of late nights, uh, very patient wife who let me like kind of, did you have your daughter at the time too? Or yeah. Like, Zoe was, oh, uh, she was just turning two when, um, so life's super easy at that. Time yeah. 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 Face. So it was, uh, no, she would have been turning, uh, one. So it was, yeah, it was a challenge. So like a lot of late nights, uh, you know, took a week off work, told my boss at the time that I was doing renovations because didn't want it to seem like I was like one foot out pursuing the door, career. pursuing something else. So, you know, I, I never ended up doing those renovations. I was always worried, like, what if he comes over to my house and he sees that, like, I didn't refinish the basement? It's like, he's never going to come over. So I hope he's read the books. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he's heard the story now. So he wouldn't have cared if I would have told him that. He was very supportive of the stuff that I was doing. But I just felt that that was something I needed to say. So anyway, the book, you know, six months goes by, finally submit it. And then it comes out uh, September of, of 2018, last year. It was so awesome. And actually, I, I remember just walking into to, to Starbucks and in uh, Chapters in, in New Sudbury, and, and I see you there signing books. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is amazing. Like, and yeah. I knew that I had heard that you had a book coming up. I didn't realize you were going to be there signing books that yeah. day, so I was happy to get my signed copy. I appreciate it. <laughs> a title to the kids there. So, um, And when I shared with Mike, and he kind of let me in that this is, I'm not the first person to mention to this, but I'm... Uncle John's bathroom readers have been like they're kind of a, a staple in my house, yeah. and it's replaced the Uncle John bathroom reader. So <laughs> that's all I could hope for. It's like, hey, however any, however people want to read Hockey Three Sixty Five, whether it's on the, in the bathroom on the couch, or you know, that's that's fine by me. Better whatever, yeah. yeah. So, so that's fantastic. So let's get into a little bit of the local stuff uh, with Sudbury as well, and like, we've already touched on Sudbury Wolves, but just some of the, lo- the the local questions. So you went away to Mac, you said for one year, and then you yeah. came back. So what? Did you always know you were going to come back to Sudbury in the end, or what was that uh, thought process like? Yeah, no, we always knew. Like at the time, my wife. Uh, well, we were still we were just dating at the time, so she was my girlfriend. But we, I, I knew where it was going. You were serious? Was gonna, yeah, like we were, it was going to happen. We were going to eventually get married, and so her, her, she moved with me, and she got a job in the Halton School Board. But she was already working for the Rainbow Board, and her family is from Sudbury, and she'd always grown up in Sudbury, so we always knew that we wanted to come back here. My parents were here, my sister was here, so we'd made a deal that. We would go down to McMaster for the year so I can complete my coursework, which you really have to be there in person to do that. And then after that, when you kind of go away and do your research and your writing, I could be anywhere, right? So we yeah. agreed to move back to Sudbury. And, uh, and you know, that, that was always part of the plan for sure. Um, so that was just... Fantastic. So if you had to describe Sudbury in one sentence, what would you say? Um, I would say that Sudbury is, uh, is a true community. Um, I, I honestly feel that you know, not only just in, in the group that I work with, um, but it really feels like a place where you're part of something. Um, I also feel like it's a really generous community where no matter what you're doing, if you have a project that's in hockey or, or, or whatever it may be, that the community genuinely kind of rallies around these types of things and supports you. I've, I've, I've noticed in some of my own work, but Sudbury does really feel like that, that place where you call home, right? It's, it's kind of a, um, an abstract way of, of describing it as a community, but that, that's really kind of how I feel about it. And I mean, that's not only just you know, uh, applies to my personal life and, you know, some of the pursuits that I've done in the community that the community has supported me in. You know, I work in a great, you know, ecosystem here in Sudbury and I genuinely feel like we all kind of support each other and work together. And I think that's one of the unique things about Sudbury is that it does really have that community feel. Um, and, and that's, I think, why so many people come back here, right? I mean, I had a lot of friends who went away for school, lived down south for a few years and ultimately came back because, Obviously, Toronto real estate is crazy, um, and it's difficult to buy a house down there, but they wanted to come back because this is a place where they wanted to raise their kids, right? It's uh, For a number of reasons. So yeah. It's small town living, but yeah. in a big way, right? Like, it's yeah. not a too small of a town, but it, we, we have that perfect uh, balance, and I think yeah. that you hit the nail on the head there. Um, if you think that Sudbury is missing one thing, or we could, you could add one thing to Sudbury, whether it's in a, like, a, a, like an actual center, or whether mm-hmm. it's like a, like a festival or something like that, what would it be? I mean, I think just in general, and we've it, it has improved over the last few years, so I want to preface that, but I, I mean, 
a more vibrant downtown. I think we've been taking steps in the last even like five, ten years to to getting downtown, like to elevate it to a place where people want to go. And there's obviously some challenges associated with that. But I think that's really kind of what I see when I go to other places is like, and we're seeing more restaurants kind of springing up and we're seeing more, uh, you know, bars that aren't just catering to, you know, 18 year olds that want to get drunk in university, right? Which again, yeah. I, I, that's what I did for a long time, but ultimately it's like, where can I go get a drink downtown where I just want to have a, a nightcap, right? And so I think we're starting to see that happen more and more. And it's, it's great to see a lot of those festivals happening in town, like, uh, like up here and it's cool what they're doing with the, the festival is just so cool. Yeah, with those the with the art installations around town, but yeah, so like that's that's the stuff that I've seen. That's like that's awesome that that's happening. To see more stuff like that happening, I think is only naturally going to happen as as these things get more popular. So I mean, I think that that's that's really the one thing that I I wouldn't say is lacking, but it would just be great to see that you know you have more of that draw, you know, to the, this the main core of the city, right? Yeah, and if we had to kind of focus on what the biggest change you've seen happen in every over the last ten years, then that we would probably be some of those things have been introduced in, or was is that what you were, were you yeah. with that? Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say so. And I mean, I think even like one of the other things that's really happening is, as well right now is like, you know, back when we were younger, right? Like Sudbury didn't necessarily have a lot of, um, you know, I think a lot of variety to choose to eat from, right? Probably like a lot of chains when we were kids. But now you start to see that like there is a nice uh, you know, little culinary uh, we're getting a couple different industry happening here, right? And again, with the two breweries and the distillery in town, like it really is kind of a place now where you can come here, especially in the summer. There's all sorts of reasons why people want to come and visit Sudbury. But like, there's reasons to you know stick around for a few days because you can go and check out all these cool spots. And go all in on some of those things. Fantastic. Well, let's fire with, uh, finish up with some rapid fire questions. Okay. You ready? Yeah. Favorite Sudbury Wolf? Quentin Byfield. Quentin Byfield. Like, yeah. Who was it before that? Um, that's tough because I guess the question, and this is probably not rapid fire now because I'm meandering yeah. <laughs> through it, but like, is it favorite current player or favorite all favorite time? All time. All time. Oh, okay. Well, in that case, um, you know what? I, I grew up, the guys that I was watching though, when I like first kind of got to Surrey was like, you know, the Mark Stalls, um, you know, Nick Felino's on that team. But I would say like for my money, you know, Quentin Byfield, I'll go that right now, just because we've never seen a player quite like that with his, you know, dynamism and, and his skill level. Yeah. Uh, what podcast you listen to? Um, right now on the way over here, I was listening to the Spin Chicklets podcast. Spin Chicklets? Yeah. It is pretty fantastic. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. I, I heard that, uh, was it Bissonnette just got a, an interview with the lacrosse team or something? Yeah, he's got a professional tryout with, <laughs> with the Vancouver lacrosse team. Right? All so, through like Twitter basically. Yeah. So fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Apple or Android? Uh, Apple. What's your favorite app? Um, Twitter. Twitter? But yeah. is, is there an app on your phone that you don't think people are using enough? Uh, to be honest, no, like literally the only things I use on my phone are text messaging, mail and Twitter and podcast, uh, <laughs> capture, podcast. right? So, uh, what's your favorite Sudbury festival or event? Um, I think up here, I think it's just always cool to see every year with what they're going to do. Right. And obviously they topped it last year with the, with the, the with yeah. the elaborate mural on the, on the hospital. Right. Which is just so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. In 10 years, Quentin Byfield will be, uh, one of the best centers in the NHL. Fantastic, fantastic. And if you had Sudbury's attention for 30 seconds, what would you say? Ooh, that's, that's definitely rapid fire, putting me on the spot. Um, what would I say to Sudbury right now? Um, honestly, I'm, I'm trying to think of something in, intelligible to say that I think is meaningful. But I think that uh, just keep being you is what I would say that again. I think that uh, the city's come a long way since I first moved here when I was a teenager. And I think that, uh, I, th I think as long as we're all kind of working together and supporting each other, we can kind of continue to be this great community, like you said, that has this, this small town vibe, but has a much bigger feel to it. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for having us on uh, Subway Stories, Mike, and uh, best of luck in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Perfect.
direct response. What is my hometown, Sudbury, Ontario, 